You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. We are going to places that Jesus went, and today we're going to the desert. Jesus went to a lot of different places in his life, in his ministry, in his time on the earth. He went to places of solitude. He went to places of fun. He went to weddings. He went to a place where people were. He went off to himself. He reached out to the outsider. And today, we follow Jesus in the desert. Just curious, how many of you have spent any significant amount of time in, a, in the desert? in the desert. A a few of you, yes. I have not, and I'm not sure I want to. Last weekend, Susan and I took a trip out to New Mexico, 725 miles from Springfield to Eagle Nest. And as we were driving through the panhandle, one of the things that struck me was that there was immediately a dust storm that just came up Um, I would say out of the blue, but it wasn't out of the blue. There was 87 degrees. It was 50 to 60 gusts of wind miles per hour. And so for about a mile, it seemed, we were just driving where we could not see. And when we got out to Eagle's Nest, we hung out with a, a very dear friend of ours, Randy Faust. I've known Randy since I was 10 years of 10 years of age. And Randy spent, just recently, seven years in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it wasn't a sightseeing tour. And I asked Randy, what's it like, really, to be in the desert? And he went to his computer and he showed me these photos. And he talked about how that one thing can happen in the desert is there's just a terrible storm that comes up and the sand blows in your face, and the storm might last for hours or it might last for days. And he reminded me that the desert is a place where there's not a lot of shelter. There's a lot of desolation. You're away from personal comforts. It's a place where you're vulnerable. And friends, If we live long enough in this life, we're going to go to our desert too, our spiritual and our emotional deserts. Um, The desert is where spiritual and emotional nourishment is scarce. It's the place where the devil can run wild. And temptations can hit you like they've never hit before. It's a place of barrenness. It's a place in this barrenness and this wilderness where you are confronted with your false selves and the things that you've constructed and the facade that you've created in your life or other people have laid on you. And it's a place where we can see clearly. We can see more clearly than we've ever seen before. And we can be empowered to take action. Do you know God does some of his greatest work in the, in the desert? If you're familiar with the biblical story, you, you know this, that it's in the desert that Abraham and Sarah are called to form 
a nation. Um, It's in the desert that Moses, after spending 40 years shepherding sheep, hears God speak to him out of a burning bush. King David forms his leadership and forms his character where? In the desert. The nation of Israel is spending 40 years traveling, stripping themselves away of their false idols, getting ready to go into the promised land where? You're a little slow in the desert. John the Baptist, a forerunner of Jesus, is a voice crying out where? The Apostle Paul, but when he's converted and meets Jesus on the road, spends time, a little time with the disciples, then goes away for three years where? In the desert. And it should not surprise us then that Jesus, at the beginning of his public ministry, after he's been baptized and filled with the Spirit, is sent out where? In the desert. You know, one of the things that we falsely assume is that when we are going through a desert, a desert in our personal life, we assume oftentimes that we've done something wrong. Could be the case, not necessarily. Desert is a dry place. And if God led the most significant leaders in his kingdom to the desert. If he leads Jesus, the spirit, drives him to the desert. God is going to lead us in the desert too, where we can look at ourself, where we can face our own inner demons, where we can strip away the facade and the false images and the false self that's been created in us. And we can see more clearly and be empowered by God. So today, let's go with Jesus to the desert. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, the fourth chapter, and look at the three temptations that Jesus is confronted with in the desert. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, into the desert. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. So one of the primary ways in which we are tempted is that we're tempted with um, sensuality, with the physical senses. Someone has said that for many people, their God is their belly. It's not everybody lives to eat. Some people, uh, not everyone eats to live, they live to eat. And so it's in the midst of Jesus' temptation after he's gone without food for 40 days that he's tempted with food. What is it that you cannot go without 
in a day? What are you tied to? One of the spiritual practices that many of us are doing at Schweitzer is actually fasting, and it's a very simple practice. It goes like this. From the Tuesday evening meal to the Wednesday evening meal, we go without food. So you're really going without food two meals. In the midst of the fast, at breakfast time, we're chewing on the Word where we would be chewing on food. And we're meditating, we're receiving, oftentimes one verse of Scripture, sometimes memorizing that Scripture and taking that Word with us. For Jesus says, you do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And at lunchtime, we are intercessing, we're praying alone or praying with someone else, and we're praying for others. Fasting is not so much about doing without food as it is feasting on God. What do you need to do without? May not be food, but what do you need to fast from that you might really feast on God? About 10 years ago, when these creatures came out, these iPhones or whenever it was, I, I got one, I've had three, and I was really enamored with it. And, and one day I misplaced it. I don't know, what do you do when you lose something? Well, I've learned that um, I oftentimes will just say, God, could you help bring to mind wherever I put that? And oftentimes, believe it or not, after a while, there's something comes to mind. Have you thought about looking here? And I find it. But immediately, I sense God whisper to me, when you want me, as much as you want that phone, you'll find it. And so what happened in my spirit for days, the better part of a week, I really centered more on God. I came to recognize that in my life, I wanted this and all that this represents more than a connection with God. And this is the gospel truth. About a week later, I was getting in my car and that phone was sitting right out in the open in the passenger seat. I asked Susan, did you find the, the phone for me? <laughs> no. I mean, it just literally appeared, and I do not know to this day how it happened. What is it that you can't do without? What is it that's first place in your life? What do you need to fast from so that you can feast on God? Second temptation that Jesus encountered with the devil has to do with wealth and resources and power. So then the devil led him up and showed him an, an, an inst, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority for it has been given over to me and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. 
And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. You ever had somebody that's had authority over you and said, you know, if you do this, you can have it all. You ever been in a position where you've been challenged and invited to compromise your soul, to sell your soul to the devil? Ever been promised by someone that had authority and power over you? You do this for me, I'll give it all to you. This temptation is real. And the temptation to hold on to things, to grasp hold of things, to hold on to wealth or power or positions, to clutch and grasp. You and I have our kingdoms too. What's your kingdom? Who are the subjects of your kingdom? What's the scepter that you hold in your hand? What do you wield over people? What do you come to possess? Where have you sacrificed to have that possession? How is that possession or that person or that position or that power become all-consuming in your life? You know, God isn't about the business of destroying the ego because the ego is who we are into eternity. But Jesus says to the devil, I only worship. I only worship God. And the ego must bow the knee, bend the knee and bow our allegiance to the only one worthy of our souls. There's a third temptation that Jesus is confronted with in the wilderness. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, friends, there's only one temple. It's a temple in Jerusalem. And any Messianic Jew knows that the Messiah that was to come, the Savior, the one place Scripture said he would definitely come to, he would come to the Lord's temple. And so Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And what is he tempting to do? He tempts him to do the sensational, to do tricks, to jump, to put God to the test, to play act, and to become the kind of a Messiah that he was never called to be. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he would be tempted. He would be tempted to do signs and miracles to please people. But what does Jesus do often when he does healings and miracles? Why, well, he does it oftentimes in obscurity. You'll find that out in the case when we go to the wedding next week. 
He does it in a way in which he doesn't call attention to himself. When he's around people sometimes, when he's doing a healing, he puts the people outside. He never does anything to draw attention to himself. He never does anything to do the sensational. He does not become the savior that the world wants him to be that's rooted in power and in self-gratification. He could have done it. But no. What kind of a savior, what kind of a Messiah is he going to be? How is he going to draw all people to him? He's going to draw people to him through his suffering. Even when he expands the loaves and the fishes in the desert and he feeds the people and they love that sign, they follow him because they want more. Jesus refuses to do another sign for them because they want what he can do for them. They don't want him. And he's willing to let people walk away. And when he's hanging on the cross, oh, how tempting it must have been when they stood right beneath him and they said, you saved others. You can't even save yourself. Come down from that cross and we'll believe in you. Jesus never yielded to that temptation. You and I are tempted to draw attention to ourselves. We're tempted religiously to be a religious false self. We're tempted to go to church and read the Bible and do these religious activities to impress other people without having a real relationship with God. The religious false self is the most difficult one of all. Now, Robert Mulholland in his book, The Deeper Journey, he talks about the different characteristics of the false self. The things that lead us to construct these facades and pretense in our life. Let's look at them briefly. Fearful. Many people, I think, live lives of quiet desperation and we're afraid. The false self is afraid to reveal itself, to face itself. And the person that the false self fears the most is God. Because the false self knows that God knows. And God is out to deconstruct that, that image, that false self. The false self is protective of itself, it's defensive, it's possessive of all the things that give this false sense of security in our lives, it's manipulative. It uses people to get the things we want. It's destructive and the thing and the person that it will ultimately destroy is our true self. It is self-protecting. It is blaming, it is finger pointing, it is self-indulgent. We are among the culture where 10% of the world's population spends over 50% of the world's goods. And it is distinction making where people of my race and my religion, my color, my English language, my heritage, 
are important and others are not. The self, the false self, ultimately is a self that constructs all these things. And it's God lovingly taking us to the desert where we can see this and we can see ourselves for who we are. It's like the skin is peeled off layer by layer. But the true self, the true son, the true daughter, the true person that you are created to be, made in the image of God, emerges. And we begin to experience freedom. And we begin to understand what the words of Isaiah meant when he said that it's out in the desert that the crocus can bloom. And that God can make Rivers of living water spring up in the desert. It was last weekend that Susan and I were walking this path in New Mexico. Just outside of Taos on the mountain path, in the midst of nothing but dirt and rock, we came across the cacti. This beautiful purple bloom growing where you wonder how in the world Does it do that? And friends, I'm here to tell you, it's in the desert that God can do his greatest work in our lives. And it's in your desert and it's in your wilderness and it's in your desert storm and it's in your dryness and it's in your barrenness that God can cause your life to flower. And that person that emerges from that is the true son and daughter of God. God does his best work in the desert. One of the guys that I've hung out with a lot as a pastor is Neil McCall, who's become a friend. And Neil, before Christmas, was diagnosed with cancer And uh, he's gone to several different doctors in several different places, and MD Anderson in Houston. And it's an ongoing, ongoing desert storm in his life. But he's someone that has something to say to us about how God can make your life bloom in the desert. Let's see what Neil's got to say to us. What would you say as a way of encouraging someone that is going through their own desert right now? What I can say is uh, my prayers are with you. Uh, It is terribly difficult to do it all by yourself. Uh, Find a prayer partner, find another Christian that you can trust to discuss how you're feeling with them and, uh, and, and then do the next right thing. Try and think, what does God want me to do at this particular moment, right here, right now in the present? What does God want me to do? And uh, and then once you've discerned that, do it. For me, I've been in desert types of, 
uh, personal feeling multiple times in my life and I've had multiple awakenings um, for 30 years I was in active alcoholism and about 13 and a half years ago um, I had had enough my wife had had enough and I did the only thing that I could think of to do and that's go to an AA meeting in a treatment center and you know what they said they said you need to find God and I said well I used to know a God but he didn't like me very much because I didn't like me and lo and behold they said you can come up with your own concept of God and so as I thought about it I realized that God was always there always waiting for me and when I was the most down he would pick me up and carry me but it reminds me of my favorite painting and that's the one on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel where Adam is kind of sitting there like this with one little finger maybe he's gonna move and maybe he's not and God is reaching all the way down please please let me take your hand and all we have to do is make that one little motion and we've got God's got our hand and he can walk with us coming out of there. Neil, we've been friends for a long time. We have. And uh, I remember that the old Neil, and I, I know this new Neil, this true self, the true person that you are. And it's just uh, thrilling for me to see you uh, as a true son of God that loves you, loves yourself in the way that God loves you and, and loves everyone the same. So. Well, thank you, Bob. And, and you know what? I, I could in some ways say the same about you because I was around when you had your desert period. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and while you weren't mean to anybody or anything, you could tell that you were struggling and, and that it was a painful period for you. You know, one of the things I want to um, uh, I, I want to say is that I, I'm going to paraphrase uh, verse 20 after John 3:16, which we all know comes this verse and I'm not sure what translation this is but it says everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed well you know that's exactly the way I was I shaved for 30 years without ever looking myself in the eye because I didn't like what I was gonna see and I didn't believe that God liked me either because of all the misdeeds that I had done and and so once I got here and realized that this was not an angry uh, judgmental God but this was a loving forgiving God then I was able to walk away from all of that stuff Jesus paid the price for my sins I could take that dumpster of stuff I'd done in, in my past and get rid of it once and for all. And, and that too helped me come out of that desert, out of that wilderness period, was knowing that I was forgiven no matter what I'd done. And I guess that's another thing that I would say to anybody who's struggling. Chances are you're struggling because you don't like some of the things you've done in your past. If you can forgive yourself, God's already forgiven you. All you have to do is ask. Friend, I want to ask you to uh, do your own soul work. 
and to have the courage to look into yourself. What do you need to do? What's the next step you can take? One of the things that we're offering at the very end of this month is a spiritual life retreat. It's a place where adults can come of any age to do their own soul work in a community where there's teaching and an introduction to the practices that fit where you are on the journey. There are 50 places for that retreat and 33 are taken. Registration ends in two weeks. If you want to do some intentional work, that retreat is for you. But did you catch Neil's words? God has already forgiven us. The question is, have we received that forgiveness? Have we forgiven ourselves? Have we come to God, bending the knee, and asking God to reveal our true selves, stripping away everything that is false? Will you come to the table with me?